0: All right. Uh, So this is the Generations podcast. Uh, I'm Luke Goldstein. I'm a writing fellow at The Prospect. uh, And I'm here with Gabrielle Gurley, senior editor. Um, And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the challenges that uh, big cities uh, face today. And so the the reason we wanted to talk about this, uh, just, you know, for one, uh, we have the first major mayoral uh, race of the year in in Chicago that's happening at the moment. Um, But somewhat, you know, kind of more more broadly, uh, you know, if if you look at polling uh, for the issues that uh, most American voters care about, um, you're going to get pretty much across the board, you know, housing, job market, transportation policing, education, transition to the green economy. Those are all at the top of the list. Uh, and for young Americans, these are going to appear uh, even even higher as, as top priorities. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not exclusively city governments actually play a pretty outsized role uh, in addressing these problems. Um, and with congressional gridlock, you know, more or less all but certain to prevail under Republican control of the House, um, the next two years are going to be even more important for for state and local action, or that's at least uh, the thesis that Gabrielle and I are are putting forward. Um, And and yet, uh, America's mayors have not been able to uh, really meet the moment. Um, For the past decade, many mayors of big cities have have left office with low approval ratings, pretty abysmal, actually, a cascading uh, crisis on signature issues that many of those mayors actually promised to fix, housing, public transit, and education, which we'll be getting into later in the uh, later in the episode. Um, so in Chicago right now, uh, a tiny sliver of residents, about 9%, believe that the city is headed in the right direction. Uh, that's actually lower than the public's approval of Congress, which is a famously low bar. Um, in New York, uh, Mayor Eric Adams, his approval has dropped about 30%, 30% since he uh, came into office. Um, Eric Adams and London Breed in San Francisco, Lori Life in Chicago. Just to name a few, they all have lower approval ratings than the the governors in their respective uh, states. Um, that was the same with Eric Garcetti before he left office. So there are many reasons for for why mayors are having a particularly, I guess, unpopular moment. Um, some of them there, and perhaps some of them out of our, out of their control, as will uh, get into. Um, but uh, you know what's clear is that uh, our country's uh, city level politicians are. Um, but city level politics are not exactly working as they uh, should at a time when local governance is uh, arguably needed more more than ever. Um. So Gabrielle covers economic development and infrastructure for the Prospect, uh, and has been honored for her work in urban journalism. She grew up in Philadelphia, uh, went to college in Washington D.C., and uh, lived for a number of years in Metro Boston before uh, returning to uh, the District of of Columbia. So I'm I'm excited to talk about these issues with her,
1: and um thrilled to be here with you as well cuz i know you are a uh urban aficionado and you are budding. Budding. Sure. Man. Yeah. But you're here you live here in DC and you're originally from the LA metro area. Yeah, right?
0: Los Angeles originally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh yes. Uh and we'll we'll be we'll be getting into the the LA politics experience later. Um so the question that i kind of put forward uh to you was you know, uh, is this kind of an issue of um, the specific leadership that we've had in cities or are, are uh, the problems that cities facing sort of larger than them? Is there even a question of if cities are you know, becoming ungovernable? Obviously, a big question that I think we'll be coming back to at various points.
1: I, it is a, a tremendously big question. And I'm going to push back on the cities as ungovernable. I think right. cities are unique ecosystems. They are, by definition, large eco. Well, they range from small, you know, smaller um, jurisdictions to the mega cities, uh, what um, urbanist Richard Florida has called the superstar cities. Yeah. Um, but urban governing has always challenged leaders. If you go back in American history and look at some of the problems that cities have faced, they are very similar to what we see today. Mm-hmm. In the 18th century, there were yellow fever epidemics up and down the East Coast from Philadelphia to Boston, what we now call, um, which includes Washington Northeast Corridor. You know, every, every two, three years, there was an epidemic. If you look at sanitation, there was a, a canal, a sewage canal running through Washington at its, at its founding. There were draft riots at the beginning of the Civil War in New York. Um, if you look at the era of, of European immigration in the late um, 19th century, the population of, of New York was doubling every 10 years from 1800 to the 1880s. There were tenements in, in, in New York. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough housing for the people that were coming in. There were homeless encampments during the Depression known as Hoovervilles, mm-hmm. which they were very nicely named after the president who they blamed uh, the Depression on.
0: And very relevant today. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so these problems have always been with us. You've had uh, groups of people coming in, immigrants from Europe, African-Americans from the South in two phases, the first and second great migrations after the first and second civil war. You've had periods of corresponding white flight. Um, Arguably, today, there are different uh, stresses on, on, on mayors, on city leaders. You have transportation challenges. Should, should people pay? Should it be free? Um, you have some of the same. Hom- you have homelessness issues. The reasons are different. Um, but you have homelessness uh, issues as well. And uh, it, it's something the churn and the push and pull has always challenged urban leaders. Um Today, you throw in crime. Well you know, cities have always had you know the the underbelly of crime to deal with, but not in probably the scope and the magnitude that we have today. Um, so, city leaders have some of the same issues mm. and new challenges. To say that they are ungovernable, I think, is a little bit of a stretch. Um, cities function every day of the week. It's only when these challenges kind of bubble up in in different phases, uh, if you have um, particularly heinous crimes, if you have encampments being cleared, you don't hear much about the successes on any of these fronts. Um, arguably crime is is a challenge in progress. Um, the problem is, as far as leadership is concerned, and what we're going to be talking about, right. is when um, mayors come in, particularly ones who haven't had uh, direct experience, they come in with promises that they cannot keep on things like crime, mm-hmm. which is a much bigger issue than any one city can deal with. Transportation is, is a little bit different. Um, housing certainly is different still. Uh, but what they promise and what they can deliver are two different things, and uh, most mayors don't get the scope of the problem until they actually get in and are able to open the books and talk with the folks who maybe have been in the bureaucracy for you know five ten years and say okay mr ms mayor let me sit down now that you're finished campaigning yeah. let me sit down and tell you how it really um how it really is
0: right yeah no and I, I mean I think it's I think it is important not to have a short-term memory about, uh, just the scope of problems, which, you know, may- maybe, maybe I do to an extent, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think we'll get into the various, uh, approaches, e- even if there have always been these kind of longstanding problems in, mm-hmm. in, in, cities going back decades. Uh, uh, you know, I think we'll get into how each of them have the approaches they've, they've taken to solving the problems today. And, you know, maybe I, I might be on, on some of them a little bit more critical, I guess. So, Gabriel, I, I am, so I studied history in college, and I guess this is just kind of my inclination for things, but it seems like important starting point here also is the modern era of city governance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, really kind of at least starts with the decline of the political machines that used to be the, um, you know, the main mode of, of governance for actually, you know, most of our, our country's history at, at the city level. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about that? Sort of how the machines operated, and you know, kind of how they how they came to an end.
1: Well, the most famous machine in, in American history, um, obviously in American urban history, is the Tammany Hall machine in, in, in New York, and other cities had a variation on those themes. And it's interesting to know that the Tammany Hall machine was created in in seventeen eighty nine, and and evolved to be around for um over way over a hundred uh, years. Um Tammany Hall stole money. There's there's no secret the Tammany Hall was, you know, fundamentally corrupt. They stole yeah. money from city government. They fixed elections. Uh they put people in power and they took people out of power. Um they got but they also um did things for the people they served, in, in quotation marks, yes. that government as we know it today was not doing. They helped get, at least for white men at the time, and, and you know, at its inception in, in New York, they got them the vote. So white men without property could vote. Um, people forget that property owners, white property owners, for uh, decades were uh, the only people who could who could vote. Um, later on, um, in the Tammany regime, particularly as immigrants started, um, coming to, uh, New York in, in great numbers, Tammany was a social service agency. Right. There was no, there was no HUD. There was no, uh, uh, you know, Department of Health and Human Services. They, um, provided social services. They provided food if you didn't right. have it. They provided jobs. All in return, there was a quid pro quo: you vote for us, and we'll make sure that you and your family, and, and if you've got people coming over mm-hmm. that you want to integrate into the into American society, we'll help them too, as long as you vote for us. Right? Um, they helped uh, put a, put together rudimentary minimum wage laws. Um, if you were sick or injured, they were the workman's comp. So they had a system, it worked, and, and people mm-hmm. supported them. Um, when you get to, and it obviously went on for, for uh, decades, uh, when you get to the Depression era, there's a, a new way of thinking about that. Um, all these rudimentary frameworks that they had put into place, um, suddenly Franklin Roosevelt... You know, former governor of New York, who right. obviously knew everything there was to know about Tammany. So, okay, wait a minute. And c- you know. came
0: out of the machine. Is that right? Ad- adjacent, kind of. Yeah. 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 That's so, the political right. memory. Yeah. You,
1: know, you know, Al Smith, who was also a governor of New York, he right. came out of the museum. I, I guess if, you, if you're if you going to rise, if you're in New York adjacent, then Tammany was in your in, right. in, in your neighborhood. Um but to get the U.S. out of the New Deal, a lot of these social services had to be um, created, centralized. Social Security, yeah. what have you, had to be done by the federal government, which kind of put a damper on, on, on Tammany Hall. was no longer um, – or it was minimized how much they were going to offer hmm. people once the federal government got social programs um, up and, right. and running.
0: So almost unintentionally, the New Deal kind of acted as this anti-corruption vehicle as well it, at the local level. Exactly. Yeah, although and now then, perhaps it's design. Yeah. Well, the
1: frameworks right. uh, began to be put into place. Um so you know, you could go and get um, social. Sec- you know, you would be put on social security rolls if you were white. Right. Uh, that was a you know another early early problem. Not that Tammany was doing a lot for African Americans or later Latinos, um, but all of these services began to be more centralized. Yeah. Uh, the the problem for Tammany and and why it finally uh, you know slithered, I guess, out of existence is that, you know, you have the corruption. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the second half of the uh, 20th century, that is just not something that politicians really want to be seen, um, to be involved yeah. in. You know, people walking around with fistfuls of cash, handing, I mean, that's what they're literally doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Handing it out for various and sundry purposes. Um, so that Became the ethics yeah. of Tammany were held up to uh, the sunlight and and didn't pass muster, so that helped curb some more of their power in other cities. Things like walk around money in Philadelphia was has been a, th- a thing into the two thousands, mm-hmm. um, and as we've been talking along, came uh, the Democratic primary and and. and 2008 and yeah. Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama saying, "Oh, walk around money in Philadelphia. Oh, we really don't think we need to do that anymore. Let's let's kind of not do that anymore," which which really um, freaked out the democratic yeah. machine in Philadelphia, not it's like,
0: cool anymore. Nah,
1: yeah. it's, it's not cool anymore for you guys to be doing that. So let's not do that. You know, I'm, I'm you know, the first right. major black candidate running for office said Barack Obama, I don't need to pay black people to come out and vote for me. They'll come out and vote for me. Um, And, and he was right in, in, in 2008, the, the Hillary, the Clinton campaign and Obama, the Obama campaign didn't pass out any money. But guess what happened when you got to 2010? There was no more money coming. Right. Turnout did not match the um, 2008. So you could see where, in some cases, yes, we don't want to do that anymore. But in a place like Philadelphia, well, you know, it, it kind of helps. So you have these vestiges um, that still remain in some cities. Um, and I know you've, <laughs> you've kind of seen that in, in Chicago.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Which is, you know, the way people talk about politics, at least from my experience covering it so far is, I mean, you know, the machine is, you know, effectively uh, dead, at least in its old incarnation. Although, you know, Richard Daly was, well, you know, part of the Daily line was still a mayor in, in the 2000s, right before Rahm Emanuel took over. Um, so I think in the same way with Fidel- Philadelphia, there are kind of these vestiges that um, that remain. But I think more the way that people talk about it is it's still the kind of shadow that the machine era has cast over the city's politics. So, you know, as the Chicago mayor race is happening right now, there is a huge uh, uh, issue that touches many of the candidates, which is that um, Mike Madigan is actually on trial for a corruption charge, and he's one of the last kind of remaining kind of old old school mm-hmm. machine, machine figures. So he um, is still with us in, in many ways. Um, but what you're saying is really interesting that there is this kind of complete inversion with city politics today compared to the machine where the machine, the corruption was more or less kind of out in the open, but also the the exchange and, you know, mm-hmm. what you what you were getting in, in return. Whereas today, I think more of the 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 uh, corruption charges are about these kind of backroom deals. You know, it's right. completely changed.
1: The corruption has become professionalized, right. if you will. Um you look at cam and what we see isn't campaign donations. Yeah. That's where that's where it's morphed into. Um and and what you're talking about in Chicago is 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 still obviously very evident. Um yeah. and it, it comes to a head in, in sectors like real estate. Right. These backroom deals, this quid pro, pro quo, at least it's a perception. That is a perception of, of <laughs> lots of voters. In um, particular, when we talk about housing, that there are these deals being made that voters are not a part of um, and that the candidates, when they come into office, are beholden to uh, real estate developers yeah. or law enforcement or, or what have you. And um, that governs how an individual governs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and on the L.A. City Council, I mean, this became effectively sort of an epidemic. There were several City Council members who were who were charged for exactly this of you know taking uh, taking taking money from uh, developers in exchange for you know certain political favors, Mm -hmm. Um, and the mechanics of that are pretty interesting. Uh, That all happened in the Garcetti years, which you know I guess we'll get into. But you know, so I guess to bring this more to the the current day, um, you know who. Who are the uh, the leaders that are you know running uh, our, our cities that you know we want to talk about? I thought maybe we would start with Boston. You wrote this great profile about Michelle Wu, who uh, came into office in twenty twenty one. You know, for I guess listeners, what's kind of the sort of you know brief recap of you know kind of who, who she is and what agenda she ran on?
1: Well, uh, Michelle Wu is the, is a, is a fascinating uh, mayor. She's the first uh, woman mayor and the first uh, mayor of color uh mm-hmm. in Boston. Uh she's a proto- protege of Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um she worked for the longtime mayor of Boston, um Tom Menino, was an, was an intern um in his office. She yeah. is uh a daughter of immigrants, or her parents are Chinese immigrants and originally um grew up in Chicago. Chicago some born in right. Chicago grew up in the suburbs. Um, She came in. It all comes back
0: to Chicago. Yeah, it
1: all comes back to Chicago. It's interesting, though, the the ties to Chicago, particularly in Mm -hmm. in, uh, Metro Boston politics. The former governor, Deval Patrick, is from Chicago. Uh, Ayanna Presley, the the representative, is is from Chicago. Yeah. Um, So there is a there is a issue in Chicago. Yeah. A connection.
0: And also, just to be just to I guess you know make get this point in there, but part of what's interesting about the machine era too, or why it's important is you know, it does, as you're saying, it touches many different national figures, even today. I mean, Nancy Pelosi was brought up in Baltimore, which famously also had a machine and mm-hmm. her father was, you know, connected. Yeah. I mean, obviously she, you know, got her, her political career going in San Francisco, but that's kind of, you know, the, you could say some of the the lessons, I guess, that she learned of how to run the party. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we're, we're seeing also kind of the Transition. I mean, Michelle Wu, by virtue of her age, she is going to be 30 this year, um, is a transition out. I mean, you can't really – she's completely outside kind of the traditional um, Boston power structure. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is basically an to the traditional Boston um, power structure, which rankled a lot of interests in Boston, particularly in the real estate. I mean, she's basically yeah. – um, She's basically declared war on the real estate, I and mean, I'm sure she would not hmm. put it that way. But she has come in with a very aggressive program to uh, confront the ex- exorbitant cost of housing in, in Boston, um, which is headed right. into New York, San Francisco, unafo- affordability, um territory, which um, – as recently as five years ago, you, could, you would laugh if you thought, "Oh, Boston is gonna, it's not gonna be up mm-hmm. there with, with uh, New York." Yeah. So she's in there, um, trying to wrestle with that, and we can we can uh, talk more about that oh, yeah. later on.
0: Her housing approach, yeah.
1: Her housing approach, but she's in a she's in a tug of war with the state government over housing. Um, as far as other leaders are concerned, um, Bill De Blasio. Uh, the predecessor to Eric Adams came in with a, Mm -hmm. a very, um, progressive, um, and he kind of worked out, you know, worked, worked outside the, the party, the democratic party, even, um, he was, uh, not the favorite going in, um, to his, his, um, first term, but emerged victorious, um, on the strength of some of his proposals, Pre K and um, Pre K for four year olds, three K for three year olds mm-hmm. um, was one of his proposals. He did it, and anybody anybody who's had kids think about it free um, pre education for three. I mean, it's re- in this country that's a revolutionary concept, right. and he was able. To do it and has held it up to this day. He is, um, um, affiliated with the Institute of Politics at, at Harvard, I believe. You know, that's, that's in his bio. I did, uh, it can be done. Um, he worked on minimum a, minimum wage issues, uh, $15 an hour. He worked with coalitions to, to put that into, um, to practice. Uh, he, he fought with, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, former governor on, uh, transit, um, did his best on affordability. Uh, but again, those are two issues where there are other actors.
0: And fought with Cuomo on that too. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Other actors involved. Um, so once you open the door to other actors, um, Pre K, 3 K, okay, maybe you get some federal grants. Uh, you you change up how taxation works, and boom, you you can you can do that. Um, but once not you start about housing and transit? You know, it, it kind of broadens the other players that you have to deal with, and that that's the push and pull for these mayors. Right. Um, they can come in with these very ambitious ambitious ideas, but who do they have to work with to put them into power? Put them into
0: play. Sorry. Hey, it's Ryan Cooper, managing editor here at The Prospect. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Prospect Generations. But I also invite you to enjoy our affiliated podcasts. Alexi the Greek and myself host Left Anchor, where we discuss politics, theory, and the left with the best writers and thinkers. You can also join comedian and prospect contributor Francesca Fiorentini for the Bituation Room, a humorous roundup of the week's news with plenty of bitching. You can find Left Anchor and the Bituation Room wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the Prospect as a Power Level member, you can unlock bonus content for each of them. What a deal. For more information or to sample the shows, visit prospect.org slash podcasts. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, right, right. Um, right, yeah. And then in, in Los Angeles, um, you know, we're just coming off of the the two Garcetti terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Garcetti now kind of waits in this sort of purgatory position for like two years to finally get confirmed as, uh, the ambassador to India. And, you know, I think there are probably some, uh, LA voters who are kind of relishing seeing him in this position. Uh, he left office, you know, pretty, uh, unpopular. Um, he came in right after when LA was still kind of reeling from, um, the great recession years. And, uh, you know, he kind of wrote in on this, um, back to basics, uh, agenda as a, you know, sort of self-styled progressive. Um, and mainly with that, Meant was, you know, it kind of entailed your, you know, kind of usual grab bag of Mm -hmm. uh, progressive um, policies with a big focus, though, on environmental initiatives um, and kind of rebranding LA as um, a new kind of tech incubator, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, in the style of Silicon Valley in some ways. Um, But, you know, I think his legacy is really going to go down um, as, you know, he was the mayor who presided over this rapid escalation of. Uh, homelessness and and also the housing crisis, you know, kind of inter, interrelated. Um, and, uh, you know, I think more or less kind of the takeaway that many people had about Garcetti's style was that he was this very ambitious politician who was, you know, looking to make his way to the national stage mm-hmm. and didn't really, he, you know, similarly that de Blasi in some ways came in with a lot of uh, ambitious proposals and wasn't, didn't really have the political knack and skill and mainly wasn't willing to kind of pick fights with specific interests in order to get these things done. I, I think, you know, in particular on, on housing. Um, and now Karen Bass is taking over. Um, and, you know, we'll kind of see what, what happens if she's able to avoid some of the pitfalls that Garcetti fell into. But the interesting comparison, I think, between, uh, you know, Garcetti and this is just kind of the, the city politics of the 2010s is to compare him to Rahm Emanuel's approach in mm. Chicago, which, uh, you know, if Garcetti gets accused of being kind of ineffectual and, um, you know, timid, that's definitely not, uh, at least what people, uh, levy against Rahm Emanuel, who's no, very, timid is not, yeah, is not
1: an adjective. Very, that very, very I used yeah, to very pugilistic.
0: Uh-huh. Um, I, I would say that, you know, probably his legacy, People started calling him mayor of the 1%. He was very firmly on the side of, you know, the downtown business community. Um, and he took over after, as we mentioned, Richard Daly was the kind of the last of the the daily uh line uh from the machine era. Um and uh you know, the major kind of scandal of his years was the um shooting of Laquan McDonald um and and the kind of cover-up that um, ensued. And that's, there was then a consent degree that was actually put on the city uh, by the federal government. Um, and then Lori Lightfoot came in in 2019 and kind of, you know, sort of came out of nowhere in some ways. Uh, her background was in big law um, and she faced off against um, Tony Periwinkle, um, who uh, they both went to the runoff and Periwinkle had a kind of there, there was another corruption scandal. This is mm-hmm. going to be a running theme and, you know, Chicago, of course, as right, we'll of see. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, um, you know, that's kind of how, how she rode into office and, um, you know, has faced sort of a variety of, of different challenges, but also, you know, I mean, the pandemic hit right after she right. took office. That's defined most of her years, but you know, the sort of usual variety of, you know, crime and, and policing issues as well. Um, and, um, Yeah, so I think that, I think those kind of cover the main, main personalities or characters that we want to discuss. Um,
1: yeah, I I think, you know, the, the big takeaway from these, these personality and even ideological, um, issues is that no matter what your, your background is, um, whether you're from law or whether you, you come up, um, through you know, as a protege to, to some other policymaker, once you get into office, right. um, you get a, a, you know, a big dose of pragmatism has to, um, come your way. Right. It's really hard to, to fight some of these more, I mean, they still to a certain degree go on where there's an ideological cast to your policies and you have to fix, for example, Michelle, who is a progressive, uh, probably uh, progressive, and you can see that in her policy makeup, um, trying to compromise with, with centrists or trying to wrestle with more um, conservative uh, real estate um, interests. But voters don't care about any of that, and this is this is a a place where um, mayors unlike governors, unlike senators you know and representatives at the federal level, mayors run into their constituents on the street. Michelle Wu um, early in her term she took public transportation uh, not sure where where she is now she's coming in into mm-hmm. um, uh, second second year. Um, on that. Um, but people can run into the mayor. You can run into the mayor. Supermarket, train. Uh, and people are not asking, well, how is that um, you know, how is that that fight with this central city council right. going? You know, how you know, what are you guys thinking about in 10 years? No, they want to know um, how are you going to get the rents in line with my paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, what about those homeless people in the park? What about the trash pickup that didn't happen last week? There's all these kind of nuts and bolts. And what about test scores in schools? Um, these are nuts and bolts things that voters will call you out on to your face if they see you out in the street. It's very interesting to watch interactions between politicians and yeah. voters. It's not, it's not this measured interaction that people come up and they ask you that question, boom, and they will interrupt whatever groundbreaking um, is going on right. to put it to you. And that's a, that, that is a whole series of different reflexes and different pressures that mayors have to, to navigate. Governors don't have to generally worry about people coming up to them and bugging them. The president certainly doesn't have to worry about that. Right. But mayors do. That's why they are kind of uniquely positioned for the solutions. Um, to, they're set up to solve. They're also set up to fail because they're right there, yeah, for voters to see what's going on.
0: Right, right. No, it is more bread and butter, I guess, and it is more unforgiving though. If you if you don't deliver, on, well, on, I yeah, mean, on those you look things. at it's yeah, like yeah. At
1: the, it's the you know the um, approval ratings that you mentioned at the top. Yeah. Eric Adams has not been in a year. His his approval ratings are are um, in the gutter. Yeah, because people perceive that he is not delivering. All they they see they see crime in the subway. They see trash on the on the streets. Eric Adams is not delivering. Right. Eric, what do you got for me? <laughs> you got nothing. Okay, and that's his problem. Eric Adams is probably already calculating, or he is already calculating. How am I going to get reelected if if, if people are already mad to, mad at me? Not even a year in, right? So this this is this is the the challenge,
0: right? And um, yeah, I think probably before you know we we should get you know kind of you know concrete about how they've managed specific issues like like housing and, and homelessness. I, I suppose maybe one way to start though, as the kind of backdrop for you know the the many crises that mayors are facing uh, now is just the way that the economy of cities has has changed uh, kind of so dramatically over the last several um, decades. Um, and, you know, it's kind of it is kind of amazing that the just the challenges of, you know, inequality and the associate issues, um, housing homelessness are all kind of they all kind of spawn from this course correction that a lot of city leaders made towards sort of the end of the 20th century. Um, and just to kind of, you know, step back, this kind of starts with deindustrialization Mm -hmm. that, um, wipes out the last vestiges of the political machines, Mm -hmm. you know, because their tax base more or less goes down to the non-unionized South or overseas, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, without their tax base to, you know, finance the graft and other things it basically collapses. So there's this kind of period of, you know, kind of, political leadership crisis in, in many cities. And that's how we get the, the scary, the scary seventies as they're called the, the bankruptcy crisis. Right. The austerity yeah.
1: comes as the right. solution. Yeah. Uh, the so-called solution to the, to the bankruptcy crisis,
0: right.
1: which ends up creating yeah. this, this horror Yeah. Yeah. The scary year that, that you alluded to. Yeah.
0: Right. So you get austerity, there's capital flight and, and white flight out of many cities. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, that leads to, you know, there's crime, the crack cocaine era, war on drugs uh, and such. And, you know, that that period really scars a lot of city city mayors, I think, even even to this day. And the way that they go about trying to, you know, kind of revitalize cities mainly is by trying to draw capital back to mm-hmm. cities and be by making as hospitable conditions as they can uh, for, you know, for business interests. So. That involves, you know, lowering taxes, kind of, you know, cutting, cutting the proverbial red tape. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, if you look in the bowels of governments today, you'll see all these business, uh, development districts Mm -hmm. that are a total, uh, kind of creation of, of that period, all to kind of, you know, get any of the, you know, kind of local regulations out of the way for businesses to set up, um, and, and, and such, um, but there is kind of a problem, which is you now have all these cities that are trying to attract capital. But in the second half of the 20th century, we've had this massive national shift in our uh, economy. Deregulation and sort of, you know, the lack of antitrust enforcement has led to greater concentration within industries, but also sort of regionally, you know, Mm -hmm. like the gap between a mid-level city and an uber wealthy city today is is much higher, even than it was several decades ago. And a lot of that wealth is concentrated also in select cities along the, you know, the coasts and other urban areas in the middle. Um, And we have this transition to the the information economy, you know, so tech and finance, biggest growing sectors. That's what every city wants to attract. You know, and that completely changed the game. It becomes this knowledge economy model that cities are trying to kind of play play into.
1: And that kind of plays into the with the regional the regionalism that right. you see. Um not only not only tech, but eds and meds, education and medical centers. Pittsburgh is a shining example of this. Yeah. Boston um as well, where you have these universities um and frequently um in big cities universities have a affiliated medical um uh cohort yeah. um as well to attract um new people
0: right absolutely and,
1: and those have been they have been game changers for a lot of the rust belt cities again pittsburgh yeah um pittsburgh growing up in philadelphia pittsburgh was a place that if you were in Philadelphia, you know, going to Pittsburgh to visit or for tourism or for anything, yeah, no one, no one did that. Our, you know, in Philadelphia orientation is is New York basically. That's yeah. where the the movement is. But Pittsburgh has been ca- had been casting around desperately. What are we going to place? Industry yeah. is gone. What are we going to replace it with? Well, they had they had the universities, Carnegie Mellon, yeah. and whatnot. And a lot of money went into, you know, building up these areas as centers.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And Pittsburgh now is night and day to the way it went to its incarnation in the 70s.
0: Right. The research partnerships are uh, this kind of way to draw, you know, tech startups and, you know, other kinds of industries. Right, right, right.
1: Exactly.
0: But then, and this is all just kind of a long way of getting to the housing crisis, because then you have a whole different issue, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, once capital comes back to cities, um, the, the few that are able to actually, you know, attract industries, um, and, uh, you know, cities become wealthier, you then get the spillover, which is that rents, rents go up, cost of living increases. Mm -hmm. And these cities just haven't really invested in the housing stock, um, and the housing infrastructure is just kind of not there. You have all these people who are now moving into those cities looking for jobs because that's where they've concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's created, uh, the various, you know, housing issues, gentrification, mm-hmm. um, and housing unaffordability.
1: And you, um, have the, you also have the, the associated income problem. You have all these mm-hmm. people coming into these research positions to these, well, not necessarily medical, medical is, uh, kind of a different category. Um, coming into these research uh, positions, coming into these tech positions, yeah. um, their incomes match the cost of housing, but the people who lived there prior to their um, to this influx, their incomes are not keeping up. Right. Um, and that is, you know, the cost of housing is going up, but for um, the longtime residents, it's not. Yeah. Um, particularly in the service sector, particularly even, you know... Middle-income people, middle-income people are in a a really curious uh, bind because um, their incomes are stagnating, and maybe they're sitting on a piece of property um, that they have, or their kids are trying to get into uh, rental units, Um, but the incomes are just not—they're just not not keeping up. Um, And the powers that be that are building housing uh, have a very different calculus.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's also the sideline issue that what we've seen sort of in the last several years in particular is that there's now a lot of foreign capital that comes in and buys up mm-hmm. properties and it's just kind of sitting idle because it's being used to, you know, stash right. the money and hide it from other authorities and, and such.
1: Uh, cities have to figure out what to do about that.
0: I think they've tried in New York there's, to do something, but York. I don't know how yeah, successful that is
1: um issue that I have covered um, recently, I know that in Canada, in Vancouver, where there's been a lot of um, capital coming in from Asia, where yeah. it has definitely the housing crisis has definitely uh, gone on to a degree in the Canadian cities as well, have put uh, restrictions on, you know, if the apartment can or housing, whatever, can remain vacant. Yeah. For a certain period of time. And if you go past a certain period of time, you have to pay X amount of of dollars if no one is living there. So right. There is there is movement towards that. But there's also kind of, well, if we do this, um, capital will stop coming. So yeah. it's kind of this push and pull.
0: Yeah. Right. And not going to fix housing issues writ large. But, you know, I think it's something that we're seeing cities try to turn to, at least as, you know, uh, at least one measure that, that you could take up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about what has happened in LA, uh, with the housing issue. Um, you know, I mean, San Francisco falls into this category too. It's, um, there's some distinctions, but you know, more or less, you know, they're, they're dealing with the same structural problem, which is that California has become kind of the poster child of, of the housing crisis for, for the U.S. at least, because it has, probably the most egregious, Mm -hmm. uh, setup of single, single family zoning restrictions, which, you know, there's just massive sprawl in in both those cities. Um, and yeah, what some people would say too, is that, you know, after there's this huge growth and expansion post post post-war era, there's this period of kind of a degrowth mindset that took hold at urban planning Mm -hmm. commissions and, and such. And so it's just, it's really difficult to, to build, um, new housing and, and, and developments because of these various land use and, and zoning laws on the books. So this has been the case for many, many decades now. Uh, so Garcetti takes office and he has a kind of broad plan, you know, mm-hmm. to try and at least um, deliver certain rent subsidies for low income residents, try and do something about um, homelessness. And, you know, one of the major markers is there's this HHH proposition that voters actually approve. It's a ballot prop in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of your marks, it's just over a billion dollars um, to try and build low-income housing. And it gets caught up in the famously bureaucratic L.A. Um, housing authority. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the person who runs that is appointed by Garcetti. It's like okay. his handpicked... Mm-hmm. Hand- pick person. Uh, so you would think that he would be more involved uh, to this day. This is six years later. I think there's only 2000 of those units that were open and it's supposed to be 10,000. It's been far slower than expected. And the main problem, and you do have this across cities is that you constantly run into local opposition. Sure. So especially wealthier neighborhoods, you know, they will, you know, basically kill <laughs> any of these projects of the city. Um, mm. Is trying to trying to put up. So Garcetti's response to this, when he um, you know runs runs into lo- trouble with local opposition, is he turns to this pretty specific um, authority that the LA mayor has that, it, It's kind of it's it pretty unique. I don't think it's uh, used to the same extent in other cities, which is spot zoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and more or less how that works is the mayor. Uh, can say for a certain designated area where, you know, they, they want a development, you can void the local zoning land use restrictions. Mm -hmm. If you get the vote uh, and approval of the city council. So he starts relying on this extensively. Um, and it's all for luxury, you know, high end developments. Mm -hmm. And it slowly kind of morphs into, um, a kind of, you know, pay for play Mm -hmm. scheme and, uh, That's when you get this FBI probe several years later into several city council members Mm -hmm. who are also taking dollars in exchange for votes on spot zoning and and other other projects. And you know, I mean there's something to be said. There's some housing people, uh they I guess they call themselves uh the YIMBYs, that Mm -hmm. think that, you know, just developments any developments are fine as long as it ups the housing stock. Right. And you know, the problem with the spot zoning thing is it's like, okay, you know, I mean it is being used to create I guess, technically more housing, but, you know, if you're a smaller developer or a medium developer, you're not getting in on this spot zoning exactly. system because, you know, you can't pay the big bucks really, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, or you just, you don't have the political clout to, to get the mayor to, um to override local, local authorities. So you get, you know, big developments in more or less gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, and in terms of homelessness, just to kind of round this out, because Garcetti has, you know, hits these roadblocks, What they basically resort to is a local ordinance to just get homeless people off the streets. And there are all these kind of police roundups, more or less. And that's what he really gets kind of flack for the for the most. Um, So, I mean, how does that compare way, you know, way across the country or other coast to to what happened in in Boston? I'm sure there are parallels. I mean, this is it is a national issue, but
1: again, as you mentioned in um, excuse me, in L.A., it's it's very unique. It's variation, but it's very unique uh, to the thing. But the 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 problems are are similar. Boston has a notorious, um, notoriously dysfunctional planning system. Planning in in, in quotation marks. And and as as I mentioned at the top, Michelle came in. uh, Michelle Wu came in to to deal with this. So her first order of business was dealing with. the Boston Planning and Redevelopment yeah. Authority, which is this kind of uber authority, um, which is most famously known mm-hmm. as being the engine of urban renewal. Uh-huh. Um, so she, uh, one of her first, um,
0: and sorry, just and famously, as you or as you pointed out in your piece, though, you also need a substantial amount of state approval. Right. 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 Which seems like pretty Mm -hmm. unique, I guess, to Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So the three things
1: that she wants to do is get rid of this development authority or change it, reshape it um, into more less development, more planning. Um, She wants to do something about the high cost of rent. Um and she wants to she wants an in on on these sales these multi million dollar sales that are going on all the time yeah um and tax somehow tax those sales um if you've got that kind of money well then you can pay us a nominal uh tax on your two million plus um dollar home
0: right
1: or property um for all of that to get. Any of those under her control, she has to go through the state legislature on Beacon Hill in Boston. Um, Boston is not, you know, Garcetti can can uh, you know push a couple yeah. of some city councilors into room yeah, and yeah. say, okay, what are we going to do? Um, Michelle Wu has to go up to Beacon Hill and, and deal with rep- representatives who across the state three hours away on the New York border or at the northeast, the northwest corner with Vermont. They don't particularly, they're not particularly interested in, in the problems of, uh, Boston. Yeah. And every mayor of Boston has to, has had to deal with this. Why? Which is why contemporary mayors have not been successful. The rest of the state does not care. They, um, the rest of the state, uh, Got rid of rent control in in Boston. Rent control in Boston and, and two other jurisdictions was put put to a statewide vote. Yeah. So, who put it to a statewide vote? The real estate community. Okay, let's get this to a statewide vote because we know we can go out to Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsfield, which is a city on the New York border, and talk them into voting. You know, sure, rent control, oh, bad. Let's let's get rid of it. Um, so she's got these additional hurdles, and now we, uh, there is a new governor, Maura Healey, who's mm-hmm. former attorney general. Um, now the articles are being wit- written in the Massachusetts press about how uh, the developers now have a friend in the corner office, as the governor's office is known
0: in, in, in Massachusetts. So they're gonna they're gonna butt heads. Probably. They're gonna They
1: are going to butt heads most certainly, mm-hmm. and I think the question there is will the governor give Michelle Wu something? Hmm. I mean, now if, if it's to my mind, it's not going to be any good for the governor, for Maura Healy to put a kibosh on everything that Michelle wants to do, because then that puts the spotlight back on her. Yeah. Um, in some ways, maybe she doesn't care because it's Boston. Hmm. The rest of the doesn't care. Um, but by the same token, Rent stabilization, why should the state legislature be involved in, in, I mean, traditionally, yes, it's involved. But if, if Boston wants to stabilize its rents, why should the governor and the state legislature stand in, in the way? So that's a perennial, that's a perennial issue, um, in a place like Boston's. We have to get control now in, in DC for, um, there aren't any particular housing regulations I'm aware of that have uh, attracted the interest of Congress, but yeah. Congress has effective effectively has veto power over right. the District of Columbia because it is it, it is not a state. Um, so you have these you have these outside factors that all of these mayors um, uh, and so, to a degree in New York, this is also an issue that uh, Eric Adams is trying to make nice on. a long list of issues with a state legislature because the le- legislature holds the strings.
0: Right. It's kind of incredible in the Boston situation though, that just, um, I mean, there are all these clashes on other issues in a state like California between, you know, rural legislators that, conflict with city priorities, but it's kind of incredible in Boston that they just don't see the housing thing as connected to them because you would assume that their districts surrounding Boston are going to have some of the spillover well, and displacement, I, I, you know?
1: Michelle, Michelle Wu is actually very shrewd. She is mm-hmm. enlisting um, the smaller cities, particularly the gateway cities, which are the former mill, mill cities. Um, to be in her corner because the, the spill out from Boston, the housing crisis is spilling out. Yeah. It's spilling out into central Massachusetts, right. it's north, north, um, eastern Massachusetts. So she's going to get a degree of buy in from her fellow mayors in the state. Oh, yeah. Um, but she's a progressive. She's going to run into opposition from the more centrist. And yeah. um, conservative Democrats, and we're talking about a Democratic state, it's a Democratic <laughs> supermajority in the legislature, but you have this very strong conservative, which if you were talking about um, the traditional uh, Republican yeah. Party, um, would probably be more, you know, maybe moderate Republicans, conservative Democrats, moderate Republicans, liberal Republicans in the, in the Northeastern in the sense of the old northeastern Republican Party, um, right. but they're in the Democratic Party, and all of these all of these interest buttheads. Right, and uh, it is unclear to me how that is going to to, to play out, um, particularly when you have a very powerful Boston real estate sector that has, you know, controls campaign contributions. You know, they they
0: just have tremendous amounts of money to, to toss around. Right. And twist arms. Yeah. Exactly. So in a, you know, related issue to, to housing and also I think we should at least get to this, um, you know, cause this, you've done extensive reporting on this is uh, the mass transit issue that mm-hmm. virtually, you know, most, most cities are, um, every, every city is dealing with uh, to an extent and, you know, has to do with housing because, you know, transportation to work and, you know, mm-hmm. um, around the cities, you know, this is all interconnected. Um, so what, what would you say is, I guess, kind of at, at the moment, what, what's the, the key issue that cities are, are struggling with um, in terms of um, mass transit?
1: Well, we haven't um, talked about the, the pandemic and all of this, mm-hmm. but the pandemic has done two things. One, it has revolutionized how we work. And part of that revolution is work from home for uh, larger white white-collar workers uh, so that in itself has decimated <laughs> has decimated public yeah. public transit so you no longer have um, commuters coming in from the suburbs um, into downtown offices all of those people are at home in the suburbs or you know at home in there you know in their city uh, apartments city houses um, which is you know, Cut revenues because lowered, you know, it has lowered um, the numbers of people who are actually using transit. And um, to, until very recently, revenues were heavily dependent in the legacy systems as the big city mm. um, systems with subways, um, traditionally subways and other other modes beyond buses, has really dealt a almost a death blow to To transit, to the operation of transit. The reason why um, transit systems finally got considerable payouts from the federal government and all of these pandemic relief packages is because they were on the verge, some of them, San Francisco, um, notably, uh, were on the verge of collapse because they could not, there was no revenue, nobody was riding transit. Um, so that we have all this, this rush of mega dollars into transit systems. And what these infusions have done that previous grants of money from the federal government did not do is that systems could use them for operating funds. Previously, they could not. Now the, uh, systems can use the money to plug holes. Problem is, um, the timeline for the the deadline uh the timeline for Mm -hmm. these funds is running out. So in the next uh between twenty twenty four and twenty twenty six, depending on what system you're talking about, um the money's gonna run out. And the um revenues from riders has not recovered for the legacy systems has not recovered to pre pandemic levels. Um systems that operate bus only easier. To get, to get that back because you still have a very um, vibrant inter- internal to the city um, community. But if you're a legacy system that's depending on commuters coming into the central um, part of your city, which most of the largest, all of the largest cities are, um, that's a problem. That's a, that's a big problem. Right. Um, the other interesting thing that's going on with transit in, in the cities is concurrent with not having any money. If people are saying, um, why not go to fr- – let's go to free fares uh, because fares were waived in a lot of places right. in the early days of the pandemic. Right. So not only do you have revenues not coming from the riders who are not going into the city, you have this you have this concurrent push, let's make everything free.
0: Right. And the and- key is you have to break this kind of vicious cycle that if – ridership rates start declining, what tends to happen is service will then also decline, you know, and then it just kind of keeps stacking on top of itself. Yeah. Right. It's a
1: vicious circle. They're kind of circling the drain. And um, that, I mean, that's to a degree, that's what's going on in New York. People left the system. The system became dirtier, you know, homeless people in the system. It's one of the things that Eric Adams wanted to do, you know, get homeless people out of the system, um, using it for shelter. And, um, crime crime started going up with a degradation of the system mm-hmm. so um, which is also happening to a certain degree it's happening here in Washington happening in Philadelphia
0: as yeah. well so, so it, K- Kansas City is the one that's experiment it's kind of been the highest profile experiment in this uh, free fair they uh, system. did
1: free fares before yeah. the pandemic right um, once the pandemic took hold uh, they continue with that experiment and have been um, able to keep going with that. Um, in part, um, they do have a streetcar system, but their percentage of, of revenues for the budget is a lot smaller than, say, a New York or a Philadelphia. In New York, before the pandemic, uh, revenues were about 40, 50 percent of the budget. Mm-hmm. Now it's down to 30, but you've got fewer riders also. Um, But but Kansas City was able to successfully do that. Where you're seeing the most success are the midsize and smaller um, cities. Richmond is now free. Richmond, Virginia. Alexandria, Virginia. um, Albuquerque, Olympia, Washington. These smaller cities are able um, to do it. What you're seeing, um, D.C. is going to do it, but only for buses beginning in July. Um, what you're also seeing start to happen is um, jurisdictions saying, okay, we're going to do free fares, but we're only going to do it for certain people. Um, for example, Seattle just came up with a free fare program for people who live in public housing. It's going to cost them only um, $2.2 million for three years. Sounds good. Not bad, but I also hear only three years, right. So, which says to me, we can do this for three years, but we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen after. Boston's in a similar situation. They've made um, certain number of buses. I believe it's three bus routes free um, until twenty twenty four. What's going to happen after twenty twenty four? Nobody right. Haven't don't know. Um, so it is this weird push pull. We have fewer riders, but we want to make everything free. The question is, you know, as always, how. How do we pay for
0: it? Yeah.
1: Right. And the Fed, the federal government, there have been le- there's been legislation um, for federal grants for jurisdictions that want to institute free fares, but it hasn't advanced.
0: Right. So. Is, that, is that in the infrastructure bill, or is that that's, that's separate?
1: I, I believe that is a standalone yeah. bill. I think uh, it's called the Freedom to Move bill uh, proposed by um, Senator Markey and okay. the Representative I believe it is not related to any of the, um,
0: makes sense. Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So Massachusetts would like to see this keep going. Um, but it's not, it's not getting a whole lot of support.
0: Right. Right. So I guess to kind of maybe, you know, wrap things up here, uh, I was curious to get your, your perspective on, on this last issue. So, you know, during the pandemic, we heard a lot of, uh, talk about how cities were, cities were going to die, uh, remote work yeah. and, you know, other things we're going to completely, uh, you know, change the landscape for cities. What how, how, how do you think, how do you think that's holding up?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it these dire, you know, as I'm sitting in my, you know, during the lockdown, reading all the cities yeah. are dead, cities are dead.
0: Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. The one thing that struck me, particularly when New York was going through its crisis, cause New York was hit hard and it was hit early the one thing that when you were reading reports about everything that was going on in New York, people were being quoted about the only sound that I heard was the sound of ambulances. Right. I mean, that's kind of a constant in the, in the news coverage where are these am- ambulances are going to hospitals. Where are the hospitals in, in the center in New York? It's in, you know, it's in, in these large medical centers, Cities were basically, American cities were kept afloat and to a to degree, the surrounding areas by the medical, you know, the medical facilities. People were not going out. They were not taking COVID victims out of the cities. They were coming in from just about everywhere. The medical establishment, I think, to a certain degree, these medical centers save cities uh, um, transit, who's riding transit? Doctors, nurses, other people. They were keeping, particularly in New York, keeping these things going for people who were connected to all sorts of functions at medical centers. So when okay. you think about it, how are cities going to collapse if the only place where you could treat these victims were the medical centers? So it behooved mayors, we've got to keep transit open. We've got to keep these medical centers. However we have to do it for people who, you know, there were also, you know, set up, you know, rideshares And however we get the personnel that we need to get to these centers, we have to do it. Right. And mayors really came into their own. I mean, Bill de Blasio for all of his, um, you know, stones that get tossed at him is I have seen the word trailblazer for COVID leadership attached to his name. Um, He's one of the few mayors in the Northeast who did not, you know, had a obviously brief shutdown of school. He kept schools open. Um, That's not usually not associated as as a positive thing when you start getting into the politics of of COVID.
0: There's a whole mess in Chicago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, things kept going. Uh, support your neighborhood businesses. That's what people did. Okay. People are ordering whatnot. Restaurants, uh, support your neighborhood restaurants. So city dwellers, even though there was a massive, again, uh, what I would call massive white flight again out. Okay. That was very class based. It was the upper, upper yeah. middle class who left everybody else. Where are they going to go? They don't have a second or a third home. They were stuck, you know, Stuck in the cities. Right. So people had to make it work. Streeteries came alive during the pandemic for people who had still had the disposable income. They weren't, you know, that people who had to get out, um, wanted to get out um, to support their local businesses. Right. All of this seemed to be under the radar of those people who were saying, who were proclaiming the death of cities. And so here we are on the, in what we all hope is a moderating pandemic. And hopefully we'll be, someone will declare it endemic at some point. Um, Cities survived. Now, people will quibble about the quality of that survival, um, particularly in the places where crime has just yeah. um, gone off the charts. Um, but they survived. And the reason the reasons I think are, are, are rather clear. And I think nice. cities will continue to survive. A lot of the population, the American population is gravitating towards cities. Everything is um when you look at the mechanisms that Americans need to survive, um medical care, it's it's in the cities. Housing is is, is still a crapshoot. Because ironically, you have to get outside of cities yeah. to find your housing. Um, but I think the, the death of cities was greatly exaggerated.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it's going to be interesting with the, the mayors who were given credit at the time for handling the pandemic well, how long that's going to last as a kind of, uh, you know, part of their resume that they mm-hmm. can carry on because I mean, obviously, obviously with Cuomo, I mean, there was a huge rise and rise and fall, you know, mm-hmm. collapse of that uh, who was heralded originally for how he handled the pandemic. And we're seeing mm-hmm. this on both the left and the right, though, because I think you can expect in the GOP primary, probably the way things are shaping up, DeSantis is going to run on, you know, how he handled the pandemic in, in Florida, mm-hmm. um, probably against Trump. But I think we'll see this kind of uh, th- no, throughout yeah. other races, uh,
1: and it'll be, it'll play differently in, in different parts of yeah. the country. And, you know, it's not clear, um, particularly with Florida, what the death death rates, there's still kind of like funny business about what the death rates actually, For sure. um, actually were. Um, and the dynamic of how people live their lives in, in Florida Um Whereas in the winter in the Northeast during COVID, you can't be out and about. But I mean, even
0: like if voters are really going to care all that much about that and, you know, in in like the next year or something, you know,
1: I think Americans uh, probably like a lot of people around the world where COVID hit hard, just don't want to, you
0: know, right? let's
1: get beyond COVID. Let's, let's move on to our, our, you know, the next generation of, of problems and, um, not Revisit and rehash yeah. what went on before, right? Although we probably should, because there will be future pandemics, and how we handled this one—you know—hopefully the next pandemic can show some improvement, although not.
0: That's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's probably that's probably a good place to a uh, place to end this then. Yeah, city, this City survives. Right. City, <laughs>
1: city survived.
0: Yeah. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I, I learned I learned a lot.
1: Thanks for for having this conversation. Yeah.
0: Great All right. It. Next time. All right.